0: Well, hey, good morning, Life Church. I hope that you guys are all doing incredibly good today. For every single one of you that's in the room, welcome. And for everyone that's joining in, watching from any location online, you guys are just as much part of the family. And you know what? I feel like I'm family here now. I've been here so often. And every time I come, I feel like I'm amongst the best friends in the world, like Pastor Aaron and Miss Tammy and Ryan and Nando and and the team. And can I just say this from the off? Like... When I hear those stories that Ryan has just mentioned about how, you know, just the other weekend you guys baptised, like, well, I know that you're going to dispute the numbers, was it 57 or 58, but 58 is almost 60. So you guys baptised, well, hey, look, let's be honest, 60 is technically closer to 100. So you guys baptised 100 people last weekend, that's awesome. (laughs) Hey, listen, though, do me a favour don 't ever think that if you 're a part of a church like this and you 're here serving on a team somewhere or you give financially and this is your home this is the place in which you are outworking your fellowship of jesus don 't ever take that for granted and don 't think that that 's normal because what you guys are building and what you guys are a part of that is not normal at all like god 's hand is on what you guys are doing here at life church and to see those stories of life change is just incredible because hey let me say this it 's really about the numbers it's about what the numbers represent because every one of those 57 or 58 numbers that have been baptized represent a story of life change and if this is your local church you are the ones that are making that happen so I salute you give yourselves a great big round of applause because you guys are killing it If I lived in this neck of the woods, I would be in church with you. So we're going to be jumping into part two of our series, Uh, Did Jesus Really Mean That Today? Now... You guys who have maybe heard me speak at Life Church before will be aware that I'm married to Emma and she's amazing and we've got three boys, Joash, Isaac and Solomon. And the way that we kind of parent is we feel that with three kids, like if two of them are good, we feel like we're winning on the balance. We feel like we're just about keeping our stuff together. A couple of years ago we took our boys ice skating and like that's not like a typical like family hobby that we do we just thought it'd be a fun thing to try and um, some of us picked it up better than others but one of our boys ended up falling on the ice quite badly and he was quite distraught and he hurt his wrist and we had to take him off the ice and then when we got home he was still complaining about this wrist but you know like as a parent you tend to fall into one of two camps like one camp is where you like mollycoddle your kids, and you wrap them in cotton wool, and you kind of, you, you, you love on them, and oh, you need a plaster on your thing, and well, we're not like that at all. We're a little bit more like, yeah, yeah, you'll be fine, like, go to school, do your thing, it'll get better. So as parents, Emma and I, we send our son, uh, he's called Isaac, we send him into school, and... Um, Yeah, we get a phone call that day and it's from the school nurse telling us we need to take him to hospital because she thinks he's broken his wrist. So we're feeling like we're not very good parents at this point in our life, Uh, you know, trying to teach him to be tough, but he has a broken wrist. So... We take him to hospital and he gets the whole thing in a plaster cast and he's like in that for about six or seven weeks. But the day after, he had his whole wrist in a plaster cast, he comes home with this letter and he says to us, you know, will you sign the letter? And we're like, well, what's the letter for? He says, well, I need to be allowed one of those iPads in school because I can't write anymore. And I'm like, do you think I'm stupid? You've hurt your left hand, you're right handed. You don't need that. (laughs) He has a major meltdown, and he goes, what do you mean I'm right-handed? He goes, I'm, I'm left-handed, I, I can't write. And now tears start to come down his eyes. He goes, do you think I'm, do you think I'm right-handed? Like, do you, not know, do you not know me at all? I've been left-handed my whole life. So I literally, I just discreetly walk out of the bedroom door. I run downstairs, and I find my wife. I say, Anne? Isaac says he's left-handed and she's like, he's not right, he is right handed right, hang on. So she goes marching up to his room and says like, hey, listen, you're right-handed, same thing. Tia goes, mom, seriously? Of all the people in the world, does nobody know me or anything that i had been left-handed all my life? And my own parents don't even know. Emma closes the bedroom door, she comes down, she goes, we are the worst parents in the world. Our kid is left-handed, and we didn't even know. Like, we need to sign the form and get him an iPad. And I'm like, okay, yeah, like, we suck as parents. This is terrible. (laughs) Anyway, so, like, the six weeks go by, and he gets his plaster cast cut off, and he's been, like, he says he's been working on the iPad, but you and I both know that means playing games all day. So he kind of gets his plaster cut off, and um, when his wrist is all perfectly well and good, and he's able to write again, I, I see him one day, and he's like, sat at the kitchen table, and he's just writing away, and he's writing with his right hand. <laughs> I go right up to him, and I say, hey, dude, there's a problem here, because here's the thing. Like, you told me that you were left-handed, and you, like, told us that we were the worst parents in the world, and we didn't know you, and we'd not been observant of the things that you go through in your life, and knew nothing about you because we got your, your hands mixed up, and, and here you are writing with your right hand. He just goes, Pfft. Dad, I've always been right-handed. I just wanted an iPad for six weeks. I'm like, you... So I just want to let you know that I come from a pretty imperfect family, and my kids are... Two of them are okay, but one of them is typically imperfect, and it interchanges all of the time between the three of them. But you know when it comes to your family life or your friendship circles, isn't it true that we all encounter the same things sometimes? We all encounter moments, times, and seasons where it just feels like life is not perfect. It feels in many regards like life has just become quite imperfect. There are certain things going on around us that just don't feel like they are the way that they should be. And we experience this sense of, that is not what I was expecting. I was not expecting my kid to tell me he was left-handed when, in fact, he was right-handed. It just wasn't what I was expecting. And we live life like that, actually, don't we? We often get what we don't expect. The reality is, is that even some of you are in church today and you're already on the receiving end of getting what you did not expect. You came here today thinking, actually, I don't really want to be here. This is going to be terrible. This is the first time you've ever been in a church. And actually what you're experiencing already is this is not as bad as I was expecting it to be. Some of you, you know, you may be been going through stuff in life and you didn't even want to come to church today. But now you're here, you're finding that it's just not what you were expecting it to be to be. And I think that actually following Jesus is a little bit like that. You end up experiencing times and seasons where you are a recipient of something that you would not expect it. In fact, what's interesting to me is that when we read scripture, when we start to interrogate and go through the Bible, there are so many texts contained within this amazing compilation of all of these oldie-worldie manuscripts that we now refer to as the Bible. There is so much in that text that actually sometimes when you read it and you stop and you pause and you think about what's, what's actually being said, it makes you really say like, what does that even mean? What's even worse is sometimes when you read the New Testament and you look at the words of Jesus, and sometimes even the words that Jesus speaks leaves you asking the question, what does that even mean? Like, did he really say that? And what he says can take you by surprise. What he says can almost come across in a way that leaves you feeling like, I was not expecting that. I mean, actually, as we interrogate this series We're going to look at one particular passage of text that's found in the book of Matthew where actually I've thought about oftentimes it's just a somewhat kind of confusing passage of text. It's one of those things that when you read it, you can't unread it and you wish you could because you don't like what it says. And in Matthew 5 verse 48, Jesus is responding and teaching and telling us how we should be towards those that are unkind towards us. He's actually telling us about how we should treat and deal with our enemies. And there is this one line in Matthew 5 verse 48 that kind of blindsides you. And if you stop and you read it, it just leaves you with more questions than it does answers. Because in Matthew 5, verse 48, this is Jesus speaking. He makes this statement. He says, you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect. I mean, that's right here. And in many of your Bibles, it will be in the red text. Jesus is now saying, hey, by the way, guys, just so you know, that you should try and live your life in a way that is perfect. And in fact, he's not the only one to relate to that idea about striving towards perfection. In fact, in 1 Peter 1, verse 16, it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And what you can take from passages of scripture such as these is that the requirement to have a relationship with God is perfection. And that creates a problem. That creates a huge problem for me. I mean, did Jesus really mean that we need to become perfect? Because if I'm going to be really honest with you, if that's the bar that's being set, I'm never going to make that. I'm never going to attain that. If perfection is where we all need to be, being super honest, I'm out. I can't do that. That's way beyond me. It creates all kinds of issues. And yet what we find is that when we read the scriptures in context, there are so many Bible stories of people who were living really imperfect, at times broken kinds of lives, who went and had a real and authentic relationship with Jesus, the one and only son of the one and only God. I mean, people whose lives were not together at all, and yet what they experienced from the Christ was love and grace, and peace, and kindness, and compassion. And I think that that's really what I want us to try and weave our way through today. If the scriptures on one hand say that we should be perfect, what does that really mean for people like you and I, who maybe at times are just something that is way beyond that, which is perfect. And I want to have this conversation with you all by looking at one particular passage of scripture. Scripture. It's one particular passage of scripture that recounts the life of somebody that was incredibly broken, incredibly messed up, had made some huge mistakes in life. In the same way that you make mistakes, this person knew exactly what it was like to make mistakes, except she got found out. She got completely caught out. And here's the cool thing. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus and yet you're just in church today checking things out, you don't even need to necessarily believe in Jesus to believe that this story happened because history tells us that this story actually happened. So I want us to go to the book of John chapter 8 and we're going to introduce ourselves to the life of somebody whose world was completely broken in shattered tears and in complete disarray. John 8 verse 3. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says, stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger, They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. So go and sin no more. So here we have this passage of scripture where we're introduced to these three groups of people. The very first person that we're introduced to is the one that is the accused. It is the accused girl that has literally been caught in the act of adultery. She has literally been sleeping with somebody who is not her husband. She has been caught. In the act. And I don't know, but I don't think it's too far a stretch of the imagination to just think, well, if she was caught in the act, then chances are she probably didn't have much of any dignity about her and she probably wasn't clothed all that much when these religious leaders have literally taken physically hold of her and started to parade her through the streets, parade her through the town, as people will have been coming out of their houses laughing and scoffing and skitting and mocking at her. I mean, this is her worst day ever. And yet, at the same time, when you hear people like me describe to, to you those events, we could almost mistakenly think that this girl is the victim here. But actually, by the letter of the law, she's not the victim at all. What we actually find is that she's a home wrecker. She's an adulterous woman. She's sleeping around with a guy who is not her husband. I mean, this is a guy that probably has children She's sleeping with some children's father. I mean, like, she's the one in the wrong here. She's hardly living the blessed life. She's certainly not living the best account of her life, right? This isn't the story that she's telling. And then at the same time, we can almost mistakenly think that it's the religious leaders that are in the wrong. But the reality is, is that by the letter of the law, they're the ones that are technically in the right. It's the woman who is in the wrong. And in so many ways, this story could relate to any single one of our lives. Granted, you might not necessarily be in the middle of an affair right now. I mean, that might be a a step too far, but it's not inconceivable. But in many ways, this story relates to exactly who we are. Because we know what it's like to feel the weight of the guilt and the shame and the pain When we know that we've caused hurt and pain in someone else's life, maybe even as a parent, a mom or a dad, maybe you feel like the way in which you've been parenting has just been below the bar. And you know in the way in which that you've tried to fix something with your daughter, fix something with your son, the more you try, the more you hurt them, the more you upset them. And now you live with the weight of that. I mean, for others, it might not be that, but maybe you are the one that has been the cheat. And now the marriage is on the rocks and the marriage is all in ruins. For others of you, It might be more of a case of you just know the thing that's got a hold on you somehow, some way. It's not how it started out to be. It's not how you'd want it to be. But the reality is, is something's got you on a hook. Like you've just found an addiction to something or to someone. There's something going on on the laptop that really you'd be embarrassed to tell anybody about. There's something that you drink in that started out as a once a weekend type of thing, but now it's an every night type of thing. There's a substance that you take, and at first you only started to take it to relieve and ease the pain. But we all know how easily we can find our life spiraling out of control. For others, maybe it's none of those things, but we struggle with anger and bitterness and jealousy and resentment. And we don't know what to do with it. So in many ways, this story could be representing any single one of us. So we're introduced first to the accused. But then the second group of people that are in this story is the group who are the accusers, these religious leaders of the day, those that were seemingly taking the moral high ground, trying to do the right thing, yet in reality, all they were sincerely attempting of doing is trying to trip Jesus up, and they didn't care who they were going to hurt in the process. It's always funny to me when you think about how come nobody in the crowd ever asked the question? How was it that you caught her again? Like, were you spying on her? Were you watching her for your own sense of personal gratification? And then all of a sudden this idea arose to you that if we capture her and we drag her to Jesus, we can position Jesus in an awkward situation where he's forced to make some kind of game-changing decision. How did you even catch, capture her in the first place? what they were wanting to try and do was elevate themselves over another's weakness. So we have the accused and then we have the accusers. But right in the middle of those two groups of people, there is one person that interjects themselves into the center of this story. In fact, 1 John chapter 2, verse eight puts it like this. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. The third party in the story now in and amongst the accused, the accusers, is now the character of Jesus who is playing this role of an advocate, getting right in the middle of this woman's brokenness. And I think that when we start to consider the question, do I need to be perfect Because Jesus has said it somewhere. So, is that what I need to strive towards? I think that when we interrogate this story, what we actually need to do is we need to explore and examine what were the actions of Jesus when he was the role, he's in the role of the advocate between these groups of people. We need to consider his actions. So, what were the actions of Jesus? The very first thing the story tells us that Jesus did towards this young girl is that it tells us that he stooped low. Like this young girl was probably thrown on the floor. She's probably on her knees crying with ripped clothing if she even had any clothing on. And the story tells us that Jesus stooped low. And I love this idea because for me, it speaks to me about how Jesus as our advocate is willing to close the distance and close the gap between the one that was broken and he himself as the one and only son Of the one and only God. He was almost trying to make a statement with his body language where he was saying, I'm willing to get on the same level as you. I'm willing to stoop low and get in amongst the dirt and in and amongst the stand. And I don't care who sees it either. I don't care what I'm going to be accused of, but I'm willing to close the distance and I'm going to get down on my knees. If you're hurting, I'm going to come to you. If you're broken, I'm going to become on the same level as you. If you've got something in your world that feels like it's falling apart and collapsing right now, I'm willing to interject myself onto the very same level where your life is found today. I'll meet you exactly where you are. The second thing that Jesus did as he was playing out this role of the advocate is that he was slow to speak. In fact, verse 7 tells us that they, meaning the religious leaders, they kept demanding an answer. They kept like trying to push him. Come on, Jesus, the law says that she should be stoned. She's guilty. She's committed the offence. She's done it. We caught her in the act. The law says that she should be stoned. What are we going to do, Jesus? And they kept just ribbing him. Like, come on, what's the answer, Jesus? What are you going to do, Jesus? What are you going to say, Jesus? And Jesus was slow to speak. In fact, Colossians verse four tells us this. Let your speech be with grace, seasoned with salt. You know, sometimes in the church, I think we get that the wrong way around. I think sometimes our speech can be full of salt and if we're lucky, hopefully people might season it with a little bit of grace but it wasn't the example that Jesus was putting out to us. Jesus was slow to speak whilst everybody else was wanting to make accusations. Jesus was slow to judge and to be made found guilty of this young girl that's in front of him. He was slow to speak. And then the third action that I think that the story tells us about Jesus and his personality and the way that he responded to it is that it shows us that he was incredibly selfless. Jesus in this moment, he wasn't concerned of being found guilty by way of association. He wasn't worried that somebody else would have seen him and as a respected leader, teacher and rabbi in the community that they might almost tar him with the same brush now. He wasn't concerned about that at all. But the reality of it is, is there here is this respected teacher, a figure that is renowned in the community hanging out on the floor in the dirt with an adulterous woman with somebody who maybe you could even argue and say, perhaps she was a prostitute. Like we don't know exactly, but we do know she was a home wrecker. So here is Jesus. He's selfless. And what we find is that Jesus is now comforting the girl that everybody else was confronting. He's willing to comfort the one that everybody else just wants to make an accusation towards. Jesus was embracing the girl that everybody else had started to disown and instead of being agreeable with all of her accusers Jesus went the other way and he's so smart and I just, man I love it when Jesus does stuff like this he's so smart and he responds to them in a roundabout way of saying well okay, I understand that what you want is blood what you want is judgment what you want is death because this girl's not perfect I know that that's what you want so let's do this Let he that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And then the story just tells us, you know, that all of the accusers, they started to leave one by one. It tells us, interestingly, that it was the eldest that left first. And I just wonder, is that because the oldest in the room was more aware of all of the times that his life had failed to live up to being even close to that which is being described as perfect? Was it the older one that was able to recount all of his sin from his youth and feel and think about all the ways in which he's fallen short? But they all started to leave. All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone, Jesus said. And then as he stooped low, he asks this question to this girl. He says, where are your accusers now? Perhaps, and we don't know exactly, but perhaps with tears running down her face in her ripped, ragged clothing, maybe her underwear, She starts for the first time to lift her head up and she looks round and she's like, they're not here. Where are your accusers? There are no accusers. And now she knows that this is nailed on. She knows how Jesus is going to respond to her accusers because he's dealt with them. But what she's not sure about at all is how is Jesus going to respond to her? Now it's just one on one. Now she's alone with the guy that knows of every intimate detail of her life. How is Jesus going to respond to her in this moment? What's Jesus going to do? What's he going to say? I mean, can you imagine how she would have wanted to have respond? Jesus blows her out the water and he turns and he says to her, I don't condemn you either. And again, we don't know exactly how this worked out, but I can imagine, as Jesus said to her, "I don't condemn you either." I think this girl might have said, "Yeah, but Jesus, you don't know about the thing." And I think Jesus might have even interjected and said, "It, does, it doesn't matter." And I think that maybe she might have spoken up loudly and courageously and boldly said, but, "But yeah, I've wrecked a home, I've wrecked a marriage, I've wrecked a family unit," and Jesus would have literally looked at her and said, "Look, I'm not here to condemn you for that." And maybe she even got more vocal as she protested and she was like, but Jesus, you just don't understand. I am not perfect. And maybe in that moment of just this divine connection between humanity and the one and only son of God, this realization presents that actually This is the whole reason why my Father has sent me from heaven so that people just like you, ordinary, nine to five regular people who oftentimes try their best but sometimes and often screw things up so that you know that you don't have to be perfect because I am perfect and in my perfection there is a covering for all of your sin and all of your wrongdoing in fact In the midst of your imperfection, my perfection will be made known. My perfection is what brings you into a real and relationship with the Father in heaven. Because what she was expecting was guilt and shame and more accusations of, well, you shouldn't have done it. You should have known better. But that wasn't what she experienced. What she experienced was kindness, compassion, and love, and grace. What she experienced was everything that she was not expecting. So, the question that we're really asking today is Did Jesus really mean that we have to be perfect? I think in life, there's always going to be a difference between that which we're aiming for and that which we're attaining. Aiming and attaining are two totally different things. And I think that we're going to find ourselves in church today with two groups of people. And that whilst perfection isn't the goal, becoming more like Jesus is. And I think that even though the gospel is not about an angry God making bad people good, What it's actually about is a loving father bringing dead people to life. Like those 58 people last week. That is the gospel in action. People who have been living imperfect lives yet brought into the realization of an incredibly perfect heavenly father that has given his one and only son Jesus Christ to die on a cross so that anyone that believes in him shall not die but have everlasting life so that you and I ordinary imperfect people can today experience a real and authentic relationship with him so that leaves us with two groups of people in church today and online also. Chances are, you either fall into a group where you would say, You're a follower of Jesus, you're a Christian, you don't just attend church, but you're a follower of the red text. Well, my ask of you today, Life Church, is as you follow Jesus. You might not need to be perfect, but can you follow the example that Jesus set? Can you become the advocates in your city? Can you play the role of the advocates in your office? in the factory where you work, in the educational establishments where you study, wherever you go in life, your responsibility, your remit is not to aim to be perfect, but it's aim to strive to be more like Jesus and play the role of that of an advocate. Or the second group of people are those that maybe have just never made a decision to follow Jesus. And maybe the reason why you've not yet made that decision is because maybe you think there's no way a God in heaven would ever want anything to do with a somebody like me who is broken and messed up and has got my own thing going on and I'm imperfect in so many ways. Well, today, if you're in that group, I hope and pray that through this story that you would see, but that's just not the God that we serve. He does not place an expectation on you to become perfect. He places the expectation on you to strive to become more like him. So now in the knowledge of the way in which Jesus dealt with this woman, he deals with you in the same way. He stoops down low. He gets onto the level where you are at No matter how broken, no matter how messed up, no matter what it is, what the thing is that you're dealing with. And he gets onto your level and he creates a pathway for you to know him in a real and authentic way. So as I close and wrap up today, I'm gonna say a prayer in closing. And I guess that I'm gonna pray for those of us that follow Christ, that we really would become more like Christ. But also, if you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, then today I'm going to say a prayer and invite you to respond by saying this prayer in your heart after me. And this is your moment, a divine holy moment between you and your Father in heaven that says, okay, God, I might not be perfect, but I don't think that's what you're looking for. And in light of how perfect you are, I understand now that you've made a way for it to be possible that I can know you. So Life Church, can we bow our heads and close our eyes in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, I just thank you for every single person gathered in church and online today. And as we together earnestly pursue you and all that you have in store for us, we ask that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would help us to become more and more like you that you would help us as followers of you become more like the advocate that you showed and displayed in this story that we've all read today. And now if you've never made that decision to become a follower of Jesus, I'm gonna say a prayer and just say this and respond in your heart whilst no one else is looking around, no one else is concerned with what's going on with you. This is your moment between your heavenly father and you. So respond if you wanna give your life to Christ today by praying this prayer after me. Father, I come to you today and I believe that you're real. I'm choosing to put my faith in you and in your son, Jesus Christ, whose life was given on a cross so that I can know you. Forgive me of my sin today, as from this point forward, I'm choosing to follow you and call myself a Christian. As somebody who is imperfect, yet in pursuit of the one that is truly perfect Amen